We're walking through a series of messages on the church, who we are, how God has called us to live, what the commitments of membership mean, what does it mean to belong to the local church, and we've spoken so far of what is a church, what are the things that make a church a church. We've spoken of the first and most fundamental responsibility and really even definition of church, namely gathering, an assembling of the people of God. And in that first message, I, I indicated that we owe a unique kind of care and attentiveness to uh, the members of our own church that we don't owe in the same way to Christians in other churches. What I said was, living faithfully as God's people under Christ's lordship entails particular people in a particular place making particular commitments to follow particular leaders and to live in particular ways. And that's what I want to unpack a little bit more fully today by answering the question, what do we owe each other? What do we, as members of the body of Christ, universally to be sure, but in a more focused way, members of a local body of Christ, a local church, what do we owe each other? Now, there are probably dozens of ways to go about answering that question, but for the sake of clarity and digestibility and to get you out of here in time for lunch, I have narrowed it down to three answers. What do we owe each other? Here are the three things I'll talk about, and then we'll walk through them one by one. Commitment, patience, and accountability. Commitment, patience, and accountability. I could easily add attendance as a primary duty that we owe each other, but for that I'll refer you to my message from last week on why we gather. Just as a word of context or disclaimer, this is about as far uh, from the type of sermon I usually preach as I ever get. Uh, what I prefer to do, and what is our pattern at Crosspoint, if you're new to us, this is maybe a good word for you to be aware, we usually walk through either a book of the Bible or a lengthy portion of a book of the Bible, one chunk at a time, consecutive exposition. That's what we typically do. I am personally much more comfortable within the boundaries of a text. So what I'm doing in this message is a little bit Bible drillish. It's a little bit of stuff from all over the New Testament, uh, which both maybe that'll you know, sharpen your, your Bible skills to get to passages really quickly. Um, but I also find it unwieldy. It's, it's a little hard to determine what to say and what not to say because you could go about this in so many different ways. So all of that is simply to say, this is certainly not exhaustive. When we're asking and answering the question, what do members of a church owe one another? I'm giving you three things, but the New Testament has probably 60, all right? So we could go all over the place. I'm just consolidating and categorizing, and this is uh, what I think uh, the Lord is leading me to emphasize in our time together this morning. So what do we owe each other? Number one, commitment. We owe each other commitment. There's a few reasons 
that I land on that word. One of them is all of the one another commands in the New Testament. There are between 50 and 60 of these particular exhortations, depending on how you translate, how you read, how you interpret, what is an exhortation, what is a description, all these, there's some variance. But somewhere between 50 and 60 exhortations that have a, a corporate, collective, community application. What we are to do with one another throughout the New Testament. Things like love one another, bear one another's burdens, confess your sins to one another. All these kinds of commands that you can find all over the New Testament. Now, let me say there is certainly a sense in which we owe these commands to all Christians. Any Christian who's a member of the body of Christ, the universal body of Christ, we ought to live in these kinds of ways with all Christians. That is true. But in order to really live them out, to actually put flesh on these commands as a way of life, we must be deeply embedded in the life of a particular community of saints in a local church. I believe that's the way that God has designed it, and that's how these commands actually get lived out. Furthermore, your relationship to that local church must be one of commitment and consistency in order to follow these instructions that the Lord has given us, right? If you're in again and out again in a local church, you can't really faithfully live these things out in any kind of consistent or compelling way. As one example, I want to take you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Again, these passages are all over the place in the New Testament, especially in the, the letters, the epistles. But this is a, a passage, about 10 verses, 11 verses, I guess, uh, that feels like and reads like almost a barrage of commands. Do this, do this, do this, don't do this, avoid this, live that way, do that. It's just a barrage of commands. And I want, as I read these verses, this is 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 22. As I read these verses, I want you to just consider the context of a, of a local church community. And even kind of secondarily asking the question, could we really live these things out in a full way without a commitment to a particular people? So let's listen to 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 22. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Just a barrage of quick commands, here is what it looks like to live together as the people of God. That's kind of the sense of this. 
you know, some, some preachers might be inclined to like take each one of those commands and preach a sermon on each one of those little things. I think the sense that we get in reading this passage from Paul is this is just a, this is a broad sort of description by exhortation of what it looks like to live as God's people. What does it mean to live as God's people? Well, it means to obey these particular commands. And how can you obey these kinds of commands without a commitment to a particular people? You can't just vaguely be a part of a global, invisible body and really live this out, respecting those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord. Who's over you in the Lord? Everyone who calls himself a pastor or a prophet or an apostle? Is, are all of them over you in the Lord? How, how are you to admonish the idol? How do you even know who those people are? Who are the idol? Just the people that we see posting on Twitter too much? Are those the, 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 they need my admonishment by a tweet? Is that, is that what this looks like? Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. How, how do we come alongside somebody who's, who's weak? who's faint-hearted, just weary. How do we know who those are? How do we know the life of somebody well enough to know this brother needs encouragement and I'm going to come alongside him and help him? That requires a local community and it requires a kind of life together where we know each other and are committed to each other. Be patient with them all. We'll come back to that one in just a minute. So you can see then that living out these kinds of commands, which again are all over the New Testament, require that I know who it is that I'm living in particular community with. Which is not to say that I'm not in any kind of spiritual community with other Christians in other places or other churches even nearby. But there's a particular people that I'm committed to walk with. I'm committed to know. I'm committed to make myself known to them. And in that way of life, we encourage, we admonish, we help, we're patient. So that's one way that I come about this word of of commitment. We, We live out the life of the church by committing to a particular people because of all of these one another commands all over the New Testament. Another way, and I've already alluded to this because it was in this First Thessalonians passage, but another way that I come to this commitment piece and the particularity of our Christian obedience is the relationship between pastors and members. The relationship between pastors and members. So we already saw in First Thessalonians 5 to respect those who labor among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you esteem them highly in love because of their work. So there's a relationship with some particular leaders. Hebrews 13, 17, which we'll spend more time on in a couple of weeks, uh, says, obey your leaders and submit to them because they are, giving, they are watching over your souls as those who are to give an account. Well, which leaders are you supposed to obey and submit to? Any leader, every leader, every Christian who has some position of leadership Are you obligated to obey all of them? I don't think so. It doesn't make sense to say that. The obligation there, the exhortation there, is to live under the leadership and the authority of 
particular Christian leaders, namely the pastors in your church, in the church where you have committed. 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2 is an exhortation to pastors. There's exhortations to pastors in that Hebrews 13 verse, by the way. We'll, again, we'll come to that in a couple of weeks. But 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2, Peter tells pastors, elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Which flock? All the sheep that belong to Jesus Christ around the world? No, the flock of God that's among you. The one where God has placed you as an overseer, as a shepherd. So there's a particular group of people that as a pastor I'm responsible for, that I'm committed to. And as members of a church, there's a particular group of pastors to whom you are accountable, to, to whom you are to give uh, respect and follow their leadership. So all of that implies commitment, right? How else are pastors to know who is the flock of God? How else can pastors know over which souls they've been commissioned to watch? And how can individual Christians know which leaders to whom they should submit and whom they should follow? I think the only way for the pastor and member relationship to work as the New Testament intends is for there to be a relationship of commitment among the members of a local church. So there is an agreement made. We will live together we will watch over one another. We will follow these leaders. These leaders will watch over us. And there's, a, there's boundaries around that, all that have a commitment at the base of it. We commit to one another. One implication of this is that I believe the local church where you're a member should be the primary context of your Christian community and discipleship. The primary context doesn't mean you can't learn from something else. You can't listen to another preacher. You can't meet with Christians who aren't in your local church. Certainly, uh, we, you, we can continue those kinds of relationships and benefit in those sorts of ways. I'm not suggesting that that should all get cut off. But I am suggesting that your church should be prioritized in your relational and spiritual life. Um, above other contexts and relationships. So, for example, if you participate or have your children participate in another church's discipleship ministries rather than your own, if you attend a Bible study at another church or with a group of Christians who all go to different churches instead of attending one that your church offers, or if you turn down invitations from members of your own church to spend time together in favor of spending time with Christians in other places or in other churches, then you should ask yourself, am I prioritizing my church family in a way that's compatible with the commitment that I've made to them as a member? That's what membership means. I am committing myself to you. We are committing ourselves to one another, and that must have implications in how we live and how we spend our time and who are the people that we go to for help and advice and who are the people to whom we're confessing our sins and who are the people that we're being patient with and all of these commands and exhortations throughout the New Testament. Now, while there is certainly a, a spiritual and mystical connection that all Christians enjoy across time and space, there is a special relationship and mutual responsibility that Christians within the same local church have for one another. 
Jonathan Lehman says, church membership is all about a church taking specific responsibility for you and you for a church. It's a mutual relationship where we are all agreeing we will watch out for one another. And this is what a membership covenant helps us do. Is a church covenant explicitly commanded in the Bible? Of course not. Is a church covenant the only mechanism a church can use to express its members' commitment to one another? No. But it's a good way, and it's a way that Baptist congregations historically have sought to preserve the purity of the church as a regenerate people and guarded against nominal faith among its participants. A membership covenant states explicitly the ways we intend to live with one another as members of this local fellowship, and it formalizes the commitments we're making to one another when we join the church. That's the function of a membership covenant. So the first thing we owe each other is commitment. Just a basic decision and stated intention to live in these particular ways with these particular people. The second thing we owe one another is patience, patience. That word is carrying a lot of weight. Uh, and there's a lot of other adjectives that could be used, nouns that could be used there, that patience is summarizing a lot of things. Forbearance, forgiveness, love, all these things could be summed up under this. There's a little Scottish ditty. To dwell above with saints in love, aye, that will be a glory. To dwell below with saints I know, now that's a different story. We, we understand why a stable commitment to a particular church is necessary for bearing with one another in love. Relationships get tough. Stuff about the church starts to bug us. Right? There's probably a little season of time when you first come to a church and things look great and you join the church and everything feels wonderful. And you're like, this is so great. This is like heaven on earth. If you've never felt that here, don't say it out loud right now. <laughs> but after a little while, things, the shine starts to wear off, right? And you start to see the feet of clay of the people around you. And you start to hear, like, okay, the pastor kind of uses the same jokes and metaphors all the time. And, uh, you know, and, and people start to, like, actually do wrong, like sin against you and offend you and get in your way and like, oh, wow, this doesn't feel so great anymore. And the American way, maybe not, maybe that's unfair to Americans specifically, the human way is just move along. When things get hard, when relationships feel icky, when there's stuff about the church and the leadership that I don't really like, I'm just moving on. I'll go to the next one. Hey, and in a city like Greenville, you got some options, right? You can go less than a mile down the road and find another one. Give that one a try. But that's not the way the New Testament calls us to live, is it? That's not the way that Jesus wants his people to relate to one another. He calls us over and over and over again to patience and forbearance and love and forgiveness and mercy and tenderheartedness. John Owen, the Puritan pastor, wrote a great little book called The Duties of Christian Fellowship. I would highly commend this book to you. It's like 
maybe 50 pages. Uh, it's just really, really good. I'm going to quote from him a good bit here. So he gives some rules. He gives some rules about here's what church members owe to their pastors, and then here's what all church members owe to one another. So here's one of the rules that he gives. Believers must bear with one another's infirmities, weaknesses, sensitivities, and failings in meekness, patience, and pity, and providing help and assistance. This is the way we're supposed to live among one another. In a good church, the relationships are not all flawless, right? Nobody has a perfect track record with one another. And if that's what you're waiting for, you're going to be disappointed. You won't find that until we're in the new heaven and new earth when Jesus has returned and established his kingdom. What it requires to be faithful to what he's calling us to do and the way he calls us to live as his people is a lot of patience, a lot of mercy, a lot of forbearance with one another. A few specific New Testament exhortations along these lines. We heard one of them earlier when Madeline read for us from Ephesians. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Don't forget. You will not forgive another brother or sister anything that is bigger, deeper, worse than what God has already forgiven you of in Christ. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. How about this familiar passage, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. We almost always only hear this at weddings, but this is about Christian community. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast it is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. If you spend much time stomping your foot and demanding things go your way, you're not walking in love. It is not irritable or resentful. Irritable meaning, I think, easily angered. Got a short fuse and I'm set off. At almost nothing. And resentful meaning, hang on to that anger a long time. It's really easy to make me mad, and I'm mad for a while. I think that's what irritable and resentful mean. I heard somebody say, this is not in the Bible, but I heard somebody say that generally speaking, Christians who are spiritually mature are easy to please and hard to offend worth considering. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I think there's even a sense in which we give each other the benefit of the doubt is sort of a, an idea expressed there in those words. It, it believes all things, it hopes all things. I'm going to hope, I'm going to trust that what that person meant was not malicious and harmful. Maybe I misread it, misheard it, misunderstood it. And endures all things. Love endures. Why, what does it have to endure? Oh my goodness. We're sinners living among a group of sinners. There is much to endure. 
And the only way to endure it is with love. If we're to live with one another in the committed way that I spoke of earlier, it's going to require patience and forbearance. To live in community as a sinner with other sinners will inevitably provide us with opportunities to extend and receive mercy and forgiveness. Here's John Owen again. Some men rejoice at the failings of others. They are malicious and fail more in their sinful joy than do their brothers of whom they are critical. Some are angry at weaknesses and infirmities. They are proud and conceited, not considering that they also are in the flesh. Some take delight in always dwelling continually on a frailty. Ever known somebody like that? Just won't let it go. They do not deserve to receive charity for their own weaknesses. Who is it who can bear an injury received seven times? Peter thought it too much. Some men think of revenge more than pardon. Some pretend to forgive, but yet every slight offense continues to alienate their affection and to keep them from fellowship. Some will hide a rough heart with a smooth face. Christ is not in any of these ways. They do not savor of the gospel. Meekness, patience, forbearance, and forgiveness, hiding, covering, removing of offenses, these are the footsteps of Christ. Isn't that good? You see, our patience and forbearance with one another is itself a living out of the gospel of grace. We're bending outward toward each other the very same grace that's been poured upon us in Jesus Christ. When you bear with your brother or sister in the church, when you forgive your brother or sister, when you decide to remain in relationship with your brother or sister, even though there's been offense, you are living out the gospel. The members of my church, more than any other person on planet Earth, should be the ones upon whom I can count to walk with me in patient love, bearing with my weaknesses, forgiving my failures, and helping me along in my journey with Christ toward heaven. It should be that way. To the extent that you are right now in your mind recognizing a gap, I don't know that I'd consider my church members the best possible place to live in that way. If you are recognizing a gap, ask the Lord, what part do I have in that gap? How can I give mercy and patience and forgiveness in ways that perhaps I haven't? We owe each other commitment and we owe each other patience. The third and final thing I'll speak of this morning we owe one another is accountability. Accountability. This is actually the first, the first paragraph in our church's covenant. The church is an accountable people. 
Here's Owen's rule. Believers must watch one another's behavior carefully and warn one another to avoid all disorderly conduct. If any offending member will not accept such warning, their case must be brought to the church. Now, obviously, the the latter part of this rule concerns formal church discipline, the practice of which, I'd suggest, necessarily implies formal membership. In order to know who we're putting out of the church, we have to clearly know who is in. Jesus authorizes and requires churches to conduct such formal discipline when necessary, though certainly not any more than necessary. It's easy to have a lead foot here. This is where people get really skeptical of church authority when it's misused, when it's heavily heavy-handed, when we're really quick to jump to judgment and condemnation and public shame. Jesus clearly authorizes us and, and calls us to do this, but no more than necessary as a means of maintaining the purity of the church and guarding her witness in the world. But that's really not even what I want to talk about today, mostly. It's good for us to remember that. The church has been given the authority to remove people from membership as an act of, of discipline. But what I want to talk about today is really Owen's first, the first part of that rule. The first part of this rule about accountability concerns private, informal interactions with one another in the regular course of church life. When we join a local church, remember, we are taking specific responsibility for the church, for that church, and we're inviting that church to take specific responsibility for us. So when I join the church, I am inviting this community and its leaders to oversee my discipleship to Christ. That's what I'm saying when I join a church. I want this to be the context of my discipleship journey, and I am submitting myself to the care and watchfulness and authority of the other members of this church and its leaders, which means I am willingly then submitting myself to the church's teaching and to the church's discipline. Here are a couple of New Testament exhortations along these lines. Galatians 6.1, I read Galatians 6.2 earlier about bearing one another's burdens. Right before that, it says this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, caught meaning trapped in, ensnared by, not, ha gotcha, right? Not like we're walking around looking who's sinning, who's sinning, okay, I'm going to that guy, right? That's, that's not what that means. If anyone is caught, ensnared in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So we are called there in Galatians 6, 1, to move toward our brother or our sister when they're ensnared in a sin and they need help. Perhaps they need admonishment, correction, warning. Maybe they just need encouragement, somebody to help them. Hebrews 3, Verses 12 and 13, take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened 
by the deceitfulness of sin. That's why sometimes this is so, feels so sticky and messy and complicated, because sin is deceitful. You don't always know when you're in sin. Did you know that? Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes we, we make choices that we know are bad choices, and we're like, I'm just going to do this anyway, and God will forgive me for it, right? Sometimes we approach things like that. But sometimes we're in sin, and we don't think we are, or we don't know that we are. And we actually need brothers and sisters who live with us to point it out and to, to help us to see another view. And we are called to bring that into the lives of our fellow church members. So we owe each other this kind of accountability. Not only the biggest, most public, most obvious kind of formal church discipline cases, but just in the regular course of life with one another. Hey, brother, you were pretty unkind in that interaction. Sometimes it's as simple as that. Just in the ordinary course of life. Now, lest we feel like we've been given carte blanche permission to go about meddling in one another's lives and get carried away, consider these important cautions that John Owen urges before we endeavor to provide any warning or correction to another brother or sister in the church. He gives more than this, but I'm going to give you just a few. He says, It is granted that much caution and wisdom, tenderness and moderation is required by anyone performing this duty. This duty being going to a brother or sister to point out or challenge or admonish about a particular conduct. A lack of these virtues means that matters can easily degenerate from a peaceful remedy of evil into the fuel of strife and debate. Anyone who is called to this duty should therefore consider the following points, and here's a few. That he should maintain peace in his own heart by being assured that he is constantly laboring to case out all the logs and specks in his own eye. A reference to Jesus' statement, remove the, speck, the log from your own eye before you try to move the speck from your brother's eye that he should carry out the admonishing in such a way that it is always clear that he has no other purpose but the glory of God and the good of his brother, that all envy and rejoicing in evil is very far from him, that he should make sure that he draws his warnings from the word so that the authority of God accompanies them and let him not presume to make any comment without the word. So when we admonish one another, exhort one another, we should use the Bible to do it. Instead of like, seem to me that, or I feel like, that's not that helpful. What we need is, God has said this, and this is out of step. That all the circumstances of the situation, of time, place, persons, etc., be weighed up and considered so that the slightest provocation may be avoided. In other words, there's lots of room here for things to go awry, for emotions to run high, for words to be misunderstood, and this gets worse. So be very, very careful of the circumstances and how this goes about. That he should carefully distinguish between personal injuries to himself, which must be discussed in a context of forgiveness rather than reproof, and other offenses that are more public. Lastly, that self-examination 
with respect to the same or similar failings must always accompany any brotherly warning. I'm no better than you. If I'm approaching somebody to draw their attention to a way that I believe they're living out of step with God's word, it's not because I'm impervious to those sorts of things. I've mastered this, so let me now help you. So we approach with the humility of, I need the same kind of care that I'm offering to you. So we must not just go flying about the church, rashly drawing attention to every sin and denouncing every misstep that we can discern. 1 Peter 4, 8 says, love covers a multitude of sins. Sometimes, maybe most times, the best thing to do is just forgive it immediately, privately, in your own mind and heart, and move along. Probably, more often than not, that's the right thing to do. But there are times when the conduct is significant enough or a consistent pattern is seen where it may be necessary to move toward a brother or sister in this way. And when you do that, keep these things in mind. Go with the word. Go with humility, recognizing you could be in the exact same place and needing the exact same help and care. Going about it with concern for the glory of God and the good of this brother. I'm not seeking to tear him down. I'm not rejoicing over him to put him in his place. But we have been called as followers of Jesus Christ and fellow members of his family to pay attention to one another, to seek the spiritual good of one another, to exhort one another toward faith and love, and when necessary and appropriate, to provide loving correction to one another. And all of this will require love. All of this will require the work of God's Spirit in us and through us. We owe each other commitment. We owe each other patience. We owe each other accountability. And so much more than one sermon can reasonably handle. But in order to live these things out, in order to follow the commands that God has given to his people in the church, we've got to live together, and we've got to be committed to one another. We have to know who is it for whom I'm responsible, who is it to whom I'm accountable, who is it that I am to watch over and to encourage and to pray for and to consider and all of that requires a commitment to a local church in an intentional and i would say formal way and that's what church membership is all about i'll wrap up by quoting jonathan lehman one more time he says you cannot fulfill your obligations to other Christians and to church leaders without the local church, at least not in the way that Scripture calls you to fulfill them. And other Christians and church leaders can't fulfill their obligations to you without the local church. You need a body of Christ to be the body of Christ. You need a family of God to be the family of God.
May the Lord grant us grace to live in these ways. Let's pray together.